Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you made the extra effort to come out on a pretty sloppy day. I appreciate your being here and uh, hope that uh, today's message is one that blesses you and challenges you in, in lots of different ways. We are uh, in week two of a six-week uh, series called I'm Spiritual But Not Religious, and we're looking at how Jesus can connect with sort of this modern search for meaning. Remember, if you miss any of the Sunday messages, you can always watch the video online or the live stream from our Facebook page, or you can actually download the sermon script and just read it for yourself at your own convenience. Last week, we sort of kicked things off by looking at kind of the first fork in the road and understanding this idea of a spiritual journey. The first fork, the first question is, is there something or is there nothing? Is there something or nothing? Is there something greater than us in this universe or are we just alone in all this cold, dead space? And what we concluded last week was that most people, over 80%, according to the research, already believe that there is a something, a something that at least got it all started, that, that holds the universe together. Most people believe there has to be some intelligence or some force that, that put this complex universe together, set it into motion. It, it didn't just happen by chance. Imagine you're walking through a store and you come across a blender on the shelf. And also imagine that you don't even know what a blender is. You've never seen one before. You've never blended anything before. You don't know what it is. Never made your own banana kale smoothie or anything like that. If you looked at the blender and you started to examine it carefully, you'd see there are metal and plastic pieces that have been shaped to fit together. There's screws and springs and dials that all connect and move with each other. There's an electrical cord to give it power. There are these sharp rotating blades within. You would logically conclude that this object was made by someone. It didn't just appear randomly out of nothing. It didn't come together by chance. It didn't just evolve over time. Something designed it, made it, and has a purpose for it, even though you might not know what that purpose is. That would be the logical conclusion. Our universe is a billion times more complex than a blender. The idea that it all came together purely through time and chance is really so illogical that it borders on the insane. In an article in the National Geographic entitled The Incredible Universe, scientists Kenneth Weaver and James Blair describe the vastness of our universe. The farthest object we can see in the known universe is perhaps 10 billion light years away. Now imagine the thickness of one sheet of paper represents the distance between our Earth and the Sun. That's about eight light minutes, okay? The distance to the next nearest star is four and a third light years. That would be a stack of paper 71 feet high. The diameter of our galaxy would be a paper stack 310 miles high, 100,000 light years. The edge of the known universe would be a pile of paper 31 million hot miles high, or a third of the weight of the Sun. What are the odds that all of that came together by accident? Well, one mathematician puts the odds this way. If you covered the whole state of Texas in quarters, a, a pile, a knee deep, and then all of them were heads up except one, and then you went wandering around Texas blindfolded, just stopped, randomly put your hand down into that pile of quarters and picked up the one tails quarter. That's about what the odds would be like. The odds of the complexity of our universe or even the complexity of something like the human eye could come about by chance is absolutely unfathomable. No, something designed our reality. And what we said is that researchers tell us that most people already believe that, already believe that there is a something, 
and they pray to that something when they're in a crisis. So last week I left you with the challenge to be open to having a spiritual conversation with someone, someone outside the church, about their beliefs about that something. Anybody do that? How did that go? How was that for you? Maybe it was like this conversation between the Peanuts characters, Linus and his older sister, Lucy. Linus innocently asked Lucy a simple question, do you ever pray? She glares at him and says, that's kind of a personal question, isn't it? You're trying to start an argument? And then she really gets in his face and says, I suppose you think you're somebody pretty smart, don't you? You know, and the last panel shows uh, poor dejected Linus sitting with Charlie Brown, and he says, you're right, religion is a very touchy subject, you know? Poor old Linus, he would just walked into a buzzsaw. And unfortunately, that can be your experience when you try to have a spiritual conversation with someone because religion, spirituality can be a very touchy subject. Even though most people believe in a something, there's still this mental and emotional barrier that doesn't make it easy to talk about. <clears throat> and that sort of brings us to our second fork in the road when it comes to the spiritual journey. Is this something that got it all started? Is it personal or impersonal? Is it a personal God who has a will and a purpose, a direction, who can communicate with mortals? Or is it just this pulsating energy that permeates the fabric of the universe? Is it a consciousness or some kind of unconsciousness with no self-knowledge or self-awareness? The second fork in the road in the spiritual journey is figuring out, is this something that got it all started, a being that I can have a relationship with, or is it completely indifferent to me. For myself, I can't believe that this something is like less than human. Any being that cannot think, can't decide, can't choose, has no self-awareness, is less than a human being. As humans, we can imagine, we can, we can dream, we can love. We have a self-consciousness that allows us to connect with others in relationship. We form bonds with each other. How is it possible that this something could be less than that or incapable of those functions? How could personality come out of something impersonal? How could love arise from something incapable of love? How could creativity come from something incapable of creative thought? No, this something has to be more than just a cold energy source. And that brings us to the teachings of Jesus because Jesus definitely taught that this mystical cosmic something, this entity that we call God, could be known and experienced in a very personal way. In fact, the message of the entire Bible, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition is this mindset that God is personal. This is where Judaism and Christianity and Islam even depart from ideologies like Buddhism or astrology or, or New Age spiritism. The Judeo-Christian belief is that there is this God who created one sextillion stars, but he desires to be known, desires to be in relationship with his creation, to be known by his created creatures. In fact, Jesus went on to say that life can only make sense when we make that connection with the God who created us. So it's important that we appreciate the tremendous change that Jesus brought and how people relate to this idea of God. In most religious traditions, the primary emotion that one's supposed to feel in approaching the something is fear. Fall down on your face, tremble, offer sacrifices, hope to appease the anger of the gods. Don't get the something mad at you, or he's going he's gonna to burn you. He's going to bring disaster upon your life. So many people still labor under this tragic idea, but not Jesus. 
Jesus' main message was God is love. God is love. God is not your angry, hostile enemy. This God desires to be your strongest ally, your biggest supporter, has your best interests at heart. This something is so personal, it even loves you. And this is seen most clearly in the way Jesus talked about God. The word Jesus used most in referring to, to, to this God is the Hebrew word Abba, Father. Like when he gave his followers a pattern for prayer, a pattern for how to communicate with this something. Jesus' prayer would start off, Our Father who art in heaven, but Father is too stern a word. It should really be our, our Daddy. This word Jesus used was Abba, the most familiar word a child would use when their father came home from work at night. Abba, Daddy. It's what Hebrew children say even today, or Orthodox Jewish children say it today when their fathers come home. It is a word of intimacy and familiarity and safety and closeness. It's a word of family. And using this kind of close, familiar word for God, that's actually what got Jesus into all kinds of hot water. Why would this word be so troubling? Because when spirituality gets codified into a religious system, there just becomes this strong tendency to keep God separate from reality, to kind of make it stiff and formal and distant from everyday life. And so from the onset of his ministry, people were trying to kill Jesus, not because of his compassion for the poor, not because he helped the sick, not because he, uh, the way he spoke uh, to people in kindness, but because he called God Abba. John chapter 5, verse 17 says this, My father, Abba, is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason they tried all the harder to kill him. For not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, the radical nature of Jesus' claim was twofold. Not only was God personal and loving, but that Jesus himself, his very person, that he was this God in the flesh. Remember Christmas and angels announcing the birth of the Messiah? He was called Emmanuel. And what does that mean? You all know it. God with us. God in the flesh. What a radical concept, though. Even though the idea of God coming in the flesh, coming as the Messiah, was, was taught in Jewish scriptures, had more than a thousand years of, of prophecy behind it, the religious teachers of the day thought Jesus was committing the worst sin possible, blasphemy, of speaking falsely about God. And according to their law, that was a crime punishable by death. But why would this God who was so personal, what does that mean to our world today? I uh, once had a friend named Carl who had this large aquarium. It took up like the whole wall of his living room. Uh, the, to the fish, Carl was like a deity. He was too large for them to understand. His actions were incomprehensible, but he completely took care of them and cared about them. Their lives depended on him. He filtered their light and their water. He checked the pH levels. He cleaned the tank of all the bad algae and the scum. He lifted the lid. He put in the food. You would think that in view of all that he did to care for these fish, they'd at least be grateful. But they're not. Every time he tried to get close, they dived for cover underneath the coral in there. He could not convince them of his care for the fish. To communicate, he'd have to learn fish language. He would have to become a fish. This is what Jesus said God did in him. In a sense, he is as though God was saying, you know, I'm not getting through to these people. 
the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, Moses, I am not getting through to these people, so I've got to get down there and get to them because I've sent them the prophets and nothing's working. I'm going to have to go down myself so that they're not afraid of me. Folks, a human being becoming a fish, that's nothing compared to this God of one sextillion stars becoming a human being. God voluntarily shrinking himself down to human size, wrapping himself in human skin. The creator entering his creation. I mean, that's crazy talk. But that's the outrageous claim that Jesus made. And far from being like a sidelight of the things that he taught, that was actually the central thing that he taught over and over again. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Look at a few of these verses where Jesus talks about his coming in the flesh. John 10, 30 says, I and the Father are one and the same, of one essence. John 10, 37, don't believe me unless I do what my Father do, does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Goes on to tell us that again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father to the Abba, except through me. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. All of these are just a few of the many times Jesus made this outrageous claim to be the Father right before them. And you could see how this would upset their apple cart. Now listen, and this is such an important point. So many people who say, oh sure, I like Jesus, I think he was a good religious teacher. You have to wonder, have you ever actually read what he taught? You know, have you actually read it? Because to say Jesus is a good religious teacher, you ought to know exactly what he taught. And this was the central thing that Jesus taught, that he was more than just a religious teacher, that he was himself God in the flesh. He taught that he was God. And that claim has to be either true or false. He was either God in the flesh or he wasn't. If the main thing Jesus taught is false, then calling him a good religious teacher is not a logical option. In fact, it's pretty darn stupid. If his claim is false, he should just be dismissed as a charlatan and a fraud and a madman, put him on the shelf with all the other false messiahs, the cult leaders, the phony hypocrites of the world, put him beneath Muhammad, because Muhammad at least never claimed to be God, he just claimed to be God's prophet, put him below Buddha, who only claimed to be a fellow struggler on the path towards enlightenment. But if Jesus' claim is true, if he really was God in the flesh, if what he taught and lived is then the truth about the spiritual world, then people really need to pay close attention to what he actually said. Jesus presents him as this God who is completely personal, the God who wants to know you and wants you to know him, not from a distance, but from the most intimate part of your life. And this is where it gets sticky if you're trying to have a spiritual conversation starts to get a little uncomfortable because many people who repeat the mantra, I'm spiritual but not religious, what they're really saying is that they want a kind of spirituality, kind of a spiritual aura that doesn't require anything in return. And the idea of a personal God, as presented by Jesus, that God makes some serious personal demands on each one of us. Come and follow me, Jesus said over and over again. Take up your cross and follow me. That's sacrifice. That's a little bit too personal. This is why people often stop the spiritual search 
just a kind of this vague, touchy-feely kind of faith because they don't really want a personal God because that would involve relationship where this God might require something of them, where the God might require a response, and that's not what they want to do. Astrology, that's easy. The stars will never place a moral demand on my life, so I can do whatever I want. Being an agnostic, you know, constantly unsure about the spiritual word, that's easy because, you know, I'm off the hook all the time. In reality, the most common brand, the most popular brand of spirituality today uh, is not the faith that Jesus taught in the Gospels. What's the most common faith, even among so-called Christians, is deism. Deism is the belief that there is a God, there is a supreme being, definitely a creator, but a creator who does not intervene with the universe. The common analogy is that this God as a creator is like the maker of a grandfather clock. He designed it, put it together, wound it up, got it started, and then he's now just letting the clock run on its own without any interference. God got it all started and then went on vacation, sort of shouting over his shoulder at his created beings, good luck. Deism was very popular in the 17th and 18th centuries, very popular among the founders of America, both the Declaration of Independence and the writers of the Constitution. They accepted the existence of a creator, but they rejected the idea of a God who actually interacts with humanity. In deism, basically, God pushes the start button, and then he just lets the machine run. We're on our own. Jesus point, paints a very different picture. A picture of a creator God who cares so much about this created world that he injects himself into his own creation. The ethereal, the infinite God becomes material and finite in the flesh to free us from fear, to save us from sin, to let us know that we're not alone, to help us live in harmony with his greater design, to be at peace with him, to live in harmony with the one who made you and who knows you best. You see, that's the other side of this personal God thing. Not only can we know this God, but we are also fully known. And we find great comfort in discovering how deeply this God, this creator, <clears throat> actually knows us, knows us so well, knows us each by name. Whether it's Tom or Lee or Carlos or Simone, whatever your name might be, God knows you that personally. He knows you and he knows me. God is so personal. I want to finish by reading a portion of Psalm 139. I want you to read Psalm 139 on your own this week. Kind of dust off your Bible if you haven't done this in a while. Download a Bible app, whatever you have to do. I would like for you to read Psalm 139 and just meditate on it. Just reflect on how wonderful it is that we have a God who is so completely personal so personal that he came in Jesus Christ and so personal that he knows you through and through. Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in from behind and you go before. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, 
you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me, your hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. To be so completely known by such a personal God, to be known so completely even as a fetus, to be loved by the one who created all things, the psalmist says such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's too lofty to attain. So how sad for those who want to be spiritual but don't understand the personal nature of this God who loves them, the depth of love that emanates from the very center of the universe. God's love is so personal. It was wrapped in human skin in Jesus, so personal so that we could see what God was like with our own eyes and love him and not be afraid. God's love is so personal in Jesus. Folks, this is the good news that needs to be shared because so many people even though they like Jesus, they haven't really figured out what it is Jesus actually said. And he said, God loves them so intimately, so deeply. Ask Jesus to help you share that with someone this week. Let's pray. Lord, how can we even begin to understand that you knew us before we were created? You knew us from the very first cells that began to form within our mother's womb. You knew us all the way through to birth, Lord. You know us intimately now. You know us all the way through death. There is nothing about us that you don't know. You know our fears and our anxieties, our mistakes, our sins, our dreams, our desires. You know everything about us, Lord, and you stamp us with one word, and that is love, because that's how big your heart is for your universe. Thank you that you know each one of us intimately, completely. I can't understand how you could do it and know billions of people, Lord, but you do. And we're so grateful for that truth, Lord. Help us to be those who are just, just shaken in a way or, or just enveloped by the sense of confidence that comes from knowing you're the God who loves us. And then give us the joy to share that with someone else, Lord. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.